You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. If you're able to remain standing, if you would turn in your Bibles to Genesis 37. We're back to reading whole chapters again. So if you need to sit down to rest, feel free to do so. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the verses on the screen. And we also have some Bibles there that we'd love to give you as a gift if you don't have one. Wherever you are in life, this is God's word to us this morning. Genesis 37. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream, verse 5. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dream and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come and bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept this saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come, let us kill him and throw him into one of these pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. 
But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of the hand, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into the pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. Verse 23, so Joseph came to his brothers. They, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was emptied and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph out and lifted him up out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and he returned to the brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. He, that is Jacob, identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept wept for him. Verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. As we have just read and you have just discovered, we are continuing in our study of the book of Genesis this morning and we come to a critical portion of this history of redemption. Chapter 37 marks the beginning of the end of the book of Genesis. Chapter 37 details the final generational marker in the book, the 10th and final Toledot or generational marker. From primeval history in chapters 1 through 10 to patriarchal history in chapters 12 through 50, Genesis captures both the origins of the known universe, the beginning of everything, and Genesis captures the origins of God's own people, namely the people of Israel. So we've looked, we've looked at the life and legacy of Abraham. We've looked to the life and legacy of Isaac and Jacob. And now, chapter 37, in chapter 37, the focus turns to the 12 sons of Jacob. The 12 sons, which as you know, will become the 12 tribes 
of the nation of Israel. But of those 12 sons, the camera angle tightens even more upon a single son, namely Joseph. So some commentators have called this entire section, chapters 37 to 50, the story of Joseph or the Joseph story. And it is a remarkable story. Let me step back before we jump into the narrative. Let me step back for a moment and share with you why I think this all matters now. Why it matters that you and I are here on April 24th, 2022, the year of our Lord, sitting here listening to Genesis 37. Why does it matter? Well, we study Genesis to discover important insights into the mind and into the character of God himself. We study Genesis to study God. What is God like? And so we open Genesis 37 and other portions of scripture to discover what is this God that we worship? What's he like? And so the pages of scripture give us insights into his character, into his nature. We also study God's word because we get life-giving principles for how to live a God-honoring, whole, and flourishing life. The Bible is full of right and godly principles for practical living. And we're going to learn some of those today in Genesis 37. There is incredible insight into how we ought to conduct ourselves in life. All of this is true. But the main purpose... And the main relevance of Genesis, our study of Genesis, I would argue, is awe. Awe. That is to say, we study this book so that our hearts would swell with wonder. Swell with wonder as we witness again and again the covenant-keeping mission of God to redeem his people from the curse and consequences of sin. Awe as we see God orchestrate like a conductor of a fine-tuned symphony. Awe as we see God orchestrate through his perfect providence the final safety of his people. Awe as we witness him move kings and kingdoms to secure a place and a promise for his elect. Awe as he preserves the seed of the woman even though rampant wickedness infects his own people. In short, beloved, we study Genesis and all of the Bible so that we might worship God himself. Now, what is particularly awe-inspiring about chapter 37 all the way to the end of Genesis is how ordinary this text is. That sounds counterintuitive. It's awe-inspiring because of how ordinary it is. It doesn't feel like those two go together. But you'll notice as we go through Genesis 37 to the end of the book, there are no major miracles of God. There are no major divine speeches of God. There's no God rending the heavens. There's no covenant cutting. There's no major God moments in Genesis 37 to the end. Instead, it's all ordinary life. Oh, God is at work, 
But he is at work in the ordinary, in the day-to-day, in the mundane, in the pasturing of the flock, in the working in the day, in the resting at night. What is remarkable about chapter 37 to the end is how unremarkable it is. In other words, in these pages, we get to marvel at God's purposeful providence in everyday life. And we're reminded that this is how God is still acting today. Yes, God can cause miracles. He can rend the heavens. He can turn water into wine. He can do all of that. And he does still perform miracles today. But I see him, at least in my life, and maybe this is why I'm so excited about this text, is I see God showing up in ordinary ways. And I want to see more of that. I want to believe that he is bringing meaning and purpose to every small little facet of ordinary life. What we discover in Genesis 37 and to the end is that nothing is random. Within the scope of God's purposeful providence, nothing is random. There are no rogue cells in our bodies. Everything is purposeful. Every move that we make, every beat of our heart, every leaf that falls from a tree, every stop at the stop sign outside, everything, everything, the weather patterns, every election, every personal betrayal, everything is working together as a fine-tuned symphony, all leading to true and lasting shalom in and around Jesus Christ. All of it is purposeful. And so let us marvel this morning, let us marvel, regardless of what kinds of sorrows or pains or joys have met you this week, let us marvel at the purposeful, meaningful providence of God in the life of Joseph. And may we trust that God has not changed, that he is still meticulously involved in our lives for our good and for his glory. Amen. That's why it matters. Let's marvel at him this morning. Well, our story in Genesis 37 begins very simply, doesn't it? It's a remarkable story, but it starts very simply. Look at verse 2 again with me. Moses is our author. He writes in verse 2, these are the generations of Jacob. Again, this is our final generational marker, 10 of 10. This is it. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Joseph is the second to youngest son of Jacob, but he's actually the firstborn of Rachel. And you'll remember that Rachel is Jacob's favorite wife. It is his favored wife. And so Joseph has his father's attention. He is the firstborn of Rachel, but he is the second to youngest of the 12 boys. In fact, Joseph and Benjamin were the two youngest. And apparently Joseph was a bit of a tattletale. He was a bit of a tattletale. 
We learn in verse 2 that Joseph brought a bad report or an evil report in some translations of his half-brothers from Bilhah and Zilpah to their father. He was a bit of a tattletale. And this, this is understandable, right? Being the youngest or one of the youngest of 12, you can imagine little Joseph getting picked on all the time. And, and I don't know, I was the youngest for a while. And, you know, you, you start having your advocates and mom or dad and you, and you want to, you want to, you know, report on the behavior of your siblings. So it's a bit understandable. We don't know if what he told his dad was true or not. We just know that he would bring bad reports about his brothers to his father, Jacob. But unfortunately, his dad, here's a principle for living, parenting. His dad would make matters worse for Joseph, not better, by showing more favor to Joseph than the other sons. Favoritism never helps anyone, ever. There's another word for that in the Bible, it's partiality. Partiality, showing favoritism, never helps anyone. And ironically, the favoritism that Jacob showed Joseph made matters worse for Joseph, not better. And this forms, this this favoritism and jealousy really forms our first movement, our first scene in the text this morning. So if you're note-taking, favoritism and jealousy is our first heading. And here the story gets going in verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. One commentator reminds us, he says, favoritism has a long pedigree or history in Jacob's family. Favoritism does. Isaac loved Esau more than Jacob. Rebekah loved Jacob more than Esau. And most pertinently, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. If there was a generational sin in the family, it was the sin of partiality. They played favorites. And now we're told in verse 3 that Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. And he wasn't shy or secretive about his partiality either, was he? To show off his favoritism, Jacob made Joseph a coat unlike any that he made his other sons. The text says it's a robe of many colors. It was most likely a robe that had longer sleeves. I'll save you the details on the Hebrew translations, but it's most likely, it was a distinctive coat. It was nice, but it was most likely distinctive because of its long sleeves and long flowing tunic. It hung lower than what the other boys were given. Clearly, it was a more beautiful and more expensive garment than all the other sons. His coat was a showcase to his favoritism. And as you think of this as a parent, of course, this is the cardinal sin of parenting, right? This is parenting 101. You don't play favorites. You just don't do it. I don't have 12 sons, but I have four children whom I love with my whole heart. 
And my children are measurement specialists. Now, let me, let me, let me explain what I mean by that. I mean, I mean like SEAL Team 6 level specialists at measuring things. For instance, if I have one piece of chocolate and I'm trying my best as a parent to break it into four pieces, within seconds of them receiving their portion, they will know within seconds who got the greater portion. And cries of justice and equity will fill my home. How could it be that you, my father, would give this child more than me and this one and this one and this one? Cries of equity and justice fill my home. Favoritism is the cardinal sin of parenting. Not only did Joseph have a favorite, but he showcased his favorite. And this did not go well for Joseph. It didn't help Joseph. It becomes a means to his betrayal. And if conflict hits our family on the account of equal distribution of treats, what on earth is Jacob thinking? This favoritism provoked and indeed was an occasion for jealousy. It was an occasion for jealousy. It provoked it. It didn't cause it. Jacob's favoritism doesn't cause the sin of the other brothers. Their sins are their own. But it was the occasion, it was the provoking that the favoritism caused. And the hatred went deep. Three times it's repeated in in chapter 37 that they hated him. Three times. Look at verse 4 again. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. This is another way to say they couldn't stand to be around him. Just watching him in that coat with his little tattletale, little mouth. I can't even stand to be around you. They hated him. They couldn't speak peaceably. They couldn't figure out a way to speak a kind word to Joseph. They hated him. And then salt gets poured in the wound. How? Joseph begins to dream. Insult to injury. And I want you to think behind as we're thinking about the purposeful providence of God, who's causing these dreams? Who's about to make life much harder for Joseph? The first dream comes in verse 5. Now, Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. (laughs) I want to tell you what just happened last night in my dream. Behold, we were binding sheaves. That means they were bundling grain. They're farming. They're bundling grain together and creating these bundles in the field. And behold, My bundle of grain, my sheaf, arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? I'm I'm guessing they were clenching their teeth. 
(laughs) Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him. That's the third hatred. They hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And Joseph doesn't get the hint. Joseph has another dream. And this one is not about bundling grain. This one has cosmic celestial imagery. Look at verse 9. Then he dreamed another dream. And told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father, even Jacob, rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come and bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept this saying in mind. I don't think I need to add too much commentary here. It's just, you can imagine how upsetting this would be. There's already a besetting hatred for their brother because of the favoritism shown by their father. And then all of a sudden, Joseph starts having dreams. You can imagine this. If you're sitting at lunch with your friend and and as you would say, I just had the weirdest dream last night. I was your master and you were my slave. And you bowed down to me. Isn't that amazing? And how awkward would that be? Oh, that's great. Oh, I I had another dream last night. And the sun and the moon and the stars and everyone was bowing. You would think that this person was a a megalomaniac. They're they're an egocentric. Their head can't fit through the door as they try to leave a room. Little did any of them know that these dreams would come to pass. As another commentator writes, I think this is Gordon Windham. He says, all dreams in the Joseph narrative. Oh yes, Joseph will have more dreams. All dreams in the Joseph narrative come in pairs. Because the pairing of the dreams meant certainty of fulfillment. Little did any of them know that these dreams would come to pass. So who's behind the dreams? Who's behind the scenes? Who's orchestrating this whole ordeal? Who's in control? The answer to that, of course, is God, which makes the next scene in this chapter all the more difficult to wrestle with doesn't it? Emotionally. Oh yes, we might have the doctrine of God's providence in our heads. Oh yeah, he's in control of everything. But what about what happens next? Scene two, a murderous plot. More favoritism shows up in the story as the other 11 sons are out pasturing the flock in Shechem. Where's Joseph? Not pasturing the flock in Shechem. He's at home. What's he doing? We know he's not pasturing this flock. He's not working with the other brothers. So another sort of sign of favoritism, maybe his dad didn't want him to go to Shechem because we know the history of that place. The sons end up moving from Shechem to Dothan for better pasture and Jacob sends Joseph out to fetch reports on their progress. He, he knows his 
tattletale will work, will work for him. And as they see Joseph coming, that is the brothers in Dothan pastoring the flock, they hatch a murderous plan. So let's pick up in verse 18. They saw him from afar. And before they, he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. Now you can imagine they see his coat coming. We know that coat. Here he comes. Here he comes. Here comes the dreamer. And now they are not content with letting hatred and jealousy rest on the surface of their heart. No, hatred and jealousy will not rest on the surface of our hearts. Unrepented of actions will flow from it. And so verse 19, they came to one another and they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. Here comes the dreamer. Clearly their jealousy and hatred had reached a boiling point. A point that only action would suffice, would release the pressure. Only action, only dramatic action. And the best solution they could come up with their warped hatred was to take the life of their younger brother, fratricide, to kill a sibling, the second youngest, the second baby in the family. Here comes the dreamer. Let's keep going. Look at verse 21. But when Reuben heard it, now Reuben is the oldest. He's the oldest of the 12. When Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. And then Moses gives us some insight into the motivations of Reuben that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. Now again, Reuben is the oldest of the 12 boys. Perhaps he feels a special responsibility for Joseph. Perhaps Reuben is trying to atone for his own sins. As you know, some chapters ago, Reuben got into some trouble with Bilhah, the servant of Jacob, and he lay with her, which was an unthinkable thing. Perhaps Reuben is trying to now atone for his sins against Bilhah, but either way, some sanity enters this scene for once. Somebody says, stop, this is crazy. We need to stop. But Reuben's plan to rescue Joseph would not hold. The text doesn't say what Reuben does. Maybe he wanders off. But his plans to rescue Joseph would not hold. Look at verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe. The robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. Then verse 25, 
Then they sat down to eat. I don't know about you, but that, that's particularly chilling to me. How do you have an appetite after that? You would think they'd be throwing up because of the horrendous thing they've just done to their little brother. They sat down to eat. Then continuing in verse 25, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum and balm and myrrh and on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Now, Dothan is on a major trade route that connects Egypt and Palestine. And so it's not surprising. They're right on a trade route and they see Ishmaelites. We know the history of Ishmael and his relationship and their relationship with Egypt. They see this caravan coming and they're salesmen. They've got goods and, and they've got things that they're looking to sell in Egypt, then verse 26, then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Here is the perfect plan. If they just leave him there in the pit, he could escape and go and rat them out to dad and they could get caught. If they kill him, then his blood is directly upon their hands and who wants that guilt for the rest of life. But by selling him to the Ishmaelites, not only will they make a little spending money, but Joseph will surely die as a slave eventually. A perfect scheme. So they thought. Verse 28, then the Midianites traders, the Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph out and lifted him up out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. So favoritism and jealousy led to a murderous plot. They fully intended to see Joseph die as a slave in Egypt. Which leads to now our final scene in Genesis 37. I've entitled it Cover Up in Providence. Verse 31. Then they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he, Jacob, identified it and said, This is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. I didn't pick up on this at first but there is some historic irony in this text. Remember, it was Jacob, Jacob, who deceived his father, Isaac. Do you remember how he deceived Isaac? He used the clothing, the garments of his brother, Esau. 
And he went and slaughtered a goat and used the goat skin to cover his own skin to mimic that of his brother Esau. He used the garments of his brother and slaughtered a goat in order to deceive his father. Now the same has come back to Jacob. Jacob's sons are now deceiving him using the garments of their brother, the coat of many colors, covered in the blood of a dead goat. And the news to Jacob is too much to bear. Verse 34, then Jacob tore his garments, which is a Hebraic, very Jewish way to exclaim mourning and and lament. He tore his garments, he put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him. That is sick. They're the cause of his mourning and they want to comfort him, but he won't be comforted. He's inconsolable. And he says to them, no, I shall go down to Sheol, to the grave, to my son mourning. I won't stop mourning him. Thus his father wept for him. This probably felt like Rachel's death all over again. Jacob keeps losing his favorites. He's inconsolable and he refuses to be comforted. The sons succeed at deceiving their father. The coat of many colors is drenched in blood. The dreamer is gone. He's gone. And then verse 36. Meanwhile. 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 The Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Meanwhile, the brothers try to thwart the dreams of Joseph by selling him to the Ishmaelites. But this action ends up becoming a means to see Joseph's dreams realized. All of the people that he could have been sold to, of all the people he could have been sold to, Joseph is sold to an officer of Pharaoh, Potiphar. And as the story goes, this is a spoiler alert, But as the story goes, Joseph's influence and power would grow in Egypt. All the way to the point where Joseph would become second in power and authority in all of Egypt, which is to say in all of the known world. And one day, as a result of a great famine in the land, Joseph's brothers, not knowing it was him, would come to Egypt and bow their faces before Joseph, asking for mercy and help. The brothers try to thwart the dream by selling him to the Ishmaelites, and this action ends up becoming a means to see his dream realized. The word this morning is meanwhile. Meanwhile. 
jealousy, envy, betrayal, deception, cover up. Meanwhile, I said at the beginning that in these pages, we get to marvel at the purposeful providence of God and be reminded that this is how God still works today. Everything, everything in your life, in mine, from the most elaborate to the most mundane, everything is working together as a fine-tuned symphony, all leading to a crescendo, a consummation of all things. Shalom, final shalom in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We just finished, didn't we? We just finished learning of Jesus' agony in the Passion. I don't know about you, I have a leak somewhere in my system. I was just blown away at the agony of Christ just last week, and now I'm, I'm suddenly unmoved by it. We learned of his betrayal. We learned of his rejection, his abandonment, the deceptive plot to take his life. Though he wasn't traded and didn't rise No, he ended up on a Roman cross. Meanwhile, in all of that, meanwhile, the hand of God was in it all. It pleased the Lord to crush the son. Meanwhile, Pontius Pilate executing his orders. Meanwhile, God the Father in total control. Meanwhile, this was the plan of God to bring ultimate rescue for his people. So who is actually in control? Proverbs 21, 30 and 31 says, No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Do whatever you want to do. Prepare for battle. The victory will be the Lord's. Job 5, 12 to 13. God frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hand achieves no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. Oh, you're going to sell him to the Ishmaelites? I'll make him the ruler of Egypt. As another writes, the story of Joseph shows how God's secret providence is behind the darkest deeds of men and works to our ultimate good. There will be, my beloved 
church, whom I love. There will be without a doubt dark deeds of men done in this world and perhaps even done to you that we may never realize what good purpose it achieved until glory. But the Bible reports with unwavering certainty that all things, all things are working together for our good. Those who are called according to the purpose of God, all things, all things, Every trauma that has come to your life, every hard diagnosis from a clinician or a doctor, every heartache, every failed marriage, every gross abuse, every failed business plan, every car accident, every lost job, every single Tear shed in the life of the believer, according to the Bible, is not meaningless. It's working for your good and mine and his glory. And there are things in my life that have happened. And I can't wait to get to glory to see what that all meant. In the strength of his grace, in the power of his Holy Spirit, our job, our aim is to cling to that promise. God is in control. He is in control. He is not morally culpable. He is not morally responsible for evil and sin. But evil and sin have no authority over him. He created light and he did not create darkness, but he named both of them. He called the darkness night. Why did he name it? To show you and I that he has authority over all darkness. And there is coming a day when every tear, every tear will have found its purpose and we will see it and he will wipe them all away. And one day we will not see through a glass dimly. We will celebrate all of God's purposeful providence. One of my favorite poems in all the universe is William Cowper's poem on providence. And let me end with his poem. Cowper writes, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. deep and unfallible minds of never-ending skill. He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread 
are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord with feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast. I love this part. They'll ripen fast. You will see the purposes of God soon, either in this life or the next, and it's coming soon. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter. He will make it plain.